Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. Today I'm joined by Megan Day, staff writer at Jacobin magazine and author of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. This week, we discuss the future of the US left in the context of COVID-19, climate breakdown, and the upcoming presidential elections. I want to say a big thank you to all our patrons. This week, we hit £500 a month in subscriptions, which puts us halfway towards our fundraising target of £1,000 per month, after which point we'll be financially sustainable. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while, but haven't gotten around to it, please consider just pausing this podcast right now and going to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. In doing so, you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes action, and a chance to influence the future direction of the show. I also want to give a shout out to our two biggest patrons, William Bell and Adam Inu, and to everyone else who has helped to support the show. We couldn't be doing this without you. Another big thank you to the Lipman and Miliband Trust for providing us with grant funding that we've used to bring you these first few episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. And another thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And also make sure you give us a rating if you're a fan. That's really important to keep us up in the charts. Also make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for updates, all with the handle at a world to win pod. Now, without further ado, I give you the rundown with Megan Day, where we talk about COVID-19, climate breakdown, and the US presidential elections. Hello, Megan Day, and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. Thanks for having me, Grace. So we're going to start by going into the first section of the show, the rundown, where we're going to talk about some news stories. And this week, we're actually going to structure them around pieces that you have recently written. So the first thing I want to talk about is, you know, what is going on in the US when it comes to A, cases of COVID-19 and B, primarily the economic impact, because you've got this piece saying the Senate just abandoned the working class without a COVID-19 relief package. And, you know, the article talks about the massive unemployment crisis, the evictions crisis, which seems, you know, insane. I thought this passage where you say piles of belongings are appearing on sidewalks and curbs, there's a new name for them, eviction cairns, was just harrowing. So can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on right now? And yeah, particularly kind of the economic impact. Yeah, I have been, so that article I wrote in mid-August after the Senate failed to come to any kind of agreement for a new coronavirus relief package. They had sort of inherited a piece of legislation from the House, which was actually pretty good. Um, I think owing to the fact that House Democrats knew that it was going to get shaved down, they sort of went bigger than one would expect. Um, But ultimately, Republicans were ruthless and Senate Democrats were, um, you know, sort of playing the game on their terms and no agreement was reached. And the August first rent deadline just came and went without a renewal of expanded unemployment benefits, federal unemployment benefits, which were floating people. Um, And once that happened, basically an eviction crisis started immediately. It's been hard to actually track. So the numbers on that are difficult because obviously we have this incredibly federated system and there's just no central tracking for this Mm. kind of thing. And so a lot of the information is really anecdotal about what's happening. You know, I've been feeling like I look outside my window and the world looks more or less normal, barring the fact that I'm in California and there's tons of smoke in the air, but we'll leave that to the side. Um, you know, California's on fire per usual, but but still the world looks somewhat normal and it's it's like uh, hard to tell that there's actually kind of a quiet apocalypse occurring right now. Mm. Um, the best place to go to, I found, so I'm writing a piece for uh, the print edition of Jacobin. Uh, I'll be done with it uh, in the middle of the month. And I have been trying to find people who've been experiencing the sort of triple whammy of like coronavirus 
um, you know, the pandemic itself and then the unemployment caused by the economic shutdown and then the eviction crisis on the heels of that. And I've been able to find people uh, mostly online when you you can go on Twitter and you can see people putting their like GoFundMes and cash mm. apps and Venmo asking for help for rent. And I've reached out to some of these people and just been like, hey, do you want to talk about what's going on? And almost all of them are basically telling me like I'm living with, you know, I moved into my sister's house and I'm sleeping on her couch or like I have like a couple more weeks in this place, but I'm really not sure if I'm going to be able to scrape together the rent. And if I don't, I don't know where I'm going to go. And so it's not like when you see these photographs of the Great Depression, you see these, you know, very long sort of like bread lines wrapping around the corner. And you have to remember that during the Great Depression, it's not like if you looked outside of any given window in America, you would have seen a bread line wrapping around your particular block, right? Mm. A lot of this desperation is happening behind closed doors and where it's visible, it's visible in particular pockets of time and space, but it's happening all around us. There are people who uh, don't know what to do. They've reached a dead end. You know, if you look at the job seekers ratio right now, there's 15 million people unemployed in the United States. Mm. Uh, that's, an, you know, an under underestimate, but that's the people who are sort of listed in the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics. And there are only six and a half million job openings, which means that no matter what they do, there are no jobs for eight million unemployed workers, 8.3 million unemployed workers. So, and the, you know, the rent is due. Um, mm-hmm. There are eviction moratoria in some places, but it's really staggered and really not a uniform. President Trump, in view of this problem, passed an executive order that's basically placed some kind of moratorium on evictions, but it's hard to say how it's going to be enforced. It was kind of strange rule that he used to announce that he had done this through an executive order. And it's not having so far a lot of bearing on individual people's lives based on my experience talking to people. People are still facing rent deadlines. Landlords are still moving to evict. Housing courts are still open and the uh, piles of belongings are still, um, you know, piling up on street corners leading to the new term eviction cairns. Mm. But it's not like this for everyone, is it? I mean, I had a piece out in Tribune last week talking about how this recession is different in the sense that for a bunch of people who have, you know, big investments in the stock market, who are able to work from home now and don't have to commute, who, you know, in the US have had these big stimulus checks. It's a very, very different story to the other half who are facing unemployment, eviction, etc. Is that, I mean, I presume that's also the case in the US, that it is one of these, you know, the pandemic is being lived in two halves. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm able to work from home. I can work on my yeah. laptop. My work is, is un, uninterrupted by the, the fact that I um, you know, can't go to like a physical place to perform my work. Um, and, you know, that that's like basically we're having a sort of um, white collar work from home versus blue collar work, work from a physical place split. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that is a little bit confused. I mean, it's, it doesn't break down like, you know, strictly along income lines. But yeah, there's definitely two different ways that people are living the pandemic. But I will say that for white collar workers who are working from home, and this is barring the, you know, the top sort of like the top earners in society who are able, they have assets and they're able to invest mm. and all that. Some of them are actually pulling away from the rest and this is not so bad for them. But for a lot of the white collar work from home professionals, I will say that I think that the, um, I think that this is spelling disaster for those people as well, even if it feels like a little bit of a vacation to some mm-hmm. people at times, because there's a couple of different things that we want to keep an eye on. One of which is that especially in California, where I'm located, it's becoming clear that tech companies are realizing as people are working from home that this is a functional situation and they don't really want to spend the money on the overhead costs of an office anymore. And so some of these jobs are going to become remote jobs. But of course, when you have people working remotely, you also need new types of supervision in order to keep them in line, which means that there's going to be new new worker surveillance technology introduced into these jobs. So life is going to change for a lot of these, uh, you know, workers from home, I think, especially if California and California's tech industry is any indicator of what's coming down the pike for other professional workers or white collar workers. So there there are things to keep in mind there. And and then there's just the much more simple and basic fact that if there's an economic depression, professional white collar workers are not going to be shielded from the radiating Mm. effects of that. That's going to be endemic and felt across society with the exception of those at the very top who are able to take advantage of the desperation of everybody else and the sort of cheap labor that 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 might generate. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, about um, how surveillance technology is going to be extended to 
white collar workers working from home. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we know how that works in Amazon warehouses and in in various other jobs that are increasingly becoming subject to those kind of new tailorism. But that is a very interesting point that I hadn't actually thought of yet about how these companies are going to extend control, which is obviously the main reason why we've seen people stay in offices, even when that hasn't, you know, been particularly necessary in recent years. Uh, that's a, a really good point. So yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, as you were saying that we're, we're looking into, you know, the face of what will be a massive you know, epoch defining economic crisis. And obviously, you would usually anticipate that the incumbent during an economic crisis as severe as this would, you know, be punished for it. But we don't exactly have the most inspiring opposition at the moment. You've, uh, you did an interview um, with uh, Mika Utrecht for Jacobin talking about how you feel about Kamala Harris. And yeah, you were not complimentary, were you? No, 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 no. I'm not excited about Kamala Harris on the ticket. Not that I had high hopes for the Biden ticket being strengthened really by mm. by any any choice that was on, on the table. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the Democrats are not putting up the kind of fight that uh, would actually take advantage of this moment politically. So I actually have something. There's a, there's a great article that uh, is out in the American Prospect. Uh, oh, shoot. Um, we'll put it in the notes or I'll send it yeah, to you later because we'll now I can't remember notes. the title of it. But I actually do. Despite not having the title in front of me, I have a quote pulled out here because I was going to use it for something else that I was writing. And it basically these, uh, you know, the person who wrote it in, uh, did focus groups with working class voters in rural and, and deindustrialized places. So places like rural Wisconsin, you know, the uh, Mahoning Valley in, in Ohio, which is also known as Steel Valley for, mm. you know, a former steel industry, northern Maine, you know, suburban Michigan, talking to these these people, um, mostly from, you know, low wage families um, about, you know, what they think about the general election and determined that three quarters of these voters supported Trump in 2016, but less than half of them planned to vote for Trump now. Mm. So Biden actually has an edge among these voters over Trump just because of Trump's incredibly poor performance, in particular, his poor performance on health care, which is the number one issue for these people. And not yeah. just like specifically, ac- not like actual access to health, life-saving health care, but also the costs associated with health care. So it's a double whammy. It's like, how am I going to be able to, you know, reproduce myself and make sure that I'm able to survive another day without my medicine? But also at the same time, if I do manage to cover those bases, how am I going to be able to reproduce myself financially and take care of my like kitchen table economics. Um, so that's that's a huge issue for these people, especially because we're in a pandemic, for one thing, that makes it a lot more acute. And then it's also the case that in a lot of these places, you know, there's like the opioid epidemic is ravaging a lot mm. of these communities. It continues to, even though it's kind of fallen away from the news. And there are sort of like additional health concerns besides simply like growing old and, and developing, you know, like illnesses and, and disabilities associated with aging. So so these voters are not exactly excited according to these focus groups about Donald Trump, but they're also not excited about Joe Biden. And to the extent that some of their support is peeling away from Donald Trump, it's only because of their negative feelings about Trump, who they feel has let them down. It's not because they're excited about the alternative. According to this article, it says the same voters were still very cautious about Joe Biden, who offered the prospect of only minor changes to the healthcare system and seemed unlikely to challenge the power of the top 1%. Like lots of other working class people, they are looking for a leader who will make big changes in healthcare, fight for working people over big business and unite the country to defeat the current economic and public health crisis. Well, who does that sound like? That sounds like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this just brings me, this just brings me to this next question, which Everyone listening to this is going to be asking, everyone around the world is going to be looking at America right now and asking the same question. We are literally going through a global pandemic. Why? And I mean, I know the answer to this question, but I want you to spell it out for our listeners. And for me, why aren't the Democrats offering universal health care? Why are they offering Medicare for all? Because they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah. The Democratic Party is a... um, a generous term for it would be that the Democratic Party is a cross-class coalition, which is to say that it includes in its coalition elements of both the upper echelons of the capitalist class and, um, you know, to the extent that uh, working class people are not, you know, disillusioned to the point of not voting, working class people as well who comprise, uh, you know, large large swaths of the Democratic Party's base. Um, but when I say coalition, I don't mean to imply that there's, you know, equal power on part of these constituencies. The dominant class is called the dominant class for a reason. It 
dominates. And so in the Democratic Party, when you have a dominant class and a less dominant class, you know, you start to mm. see the, um, you know, the dictates of the capitalist class winning out, um, you know, like the entire Democratic Party apparatus is bankrolled by wealthy donors. And this is something that Micah and I got in our um, conversation about Kamala Harris. The reason she was chosen, there's been a lot of talk about how historic firsts for identity reasons and so on. Um, I think that that is a bit of a distraction from the real reason that Kamala Harris was chosen. In fact, there were a lot of other people under consideration who were also black, who were also women. And the reason that Kamala Harris was chosen is that she has one of the fattest Rolodexes of top dollar donors in the United States because she's a senator. She's a corporate friendly senator from the wealthiest state in the wealthiest country in the history of humanity. And she has the phone numbers of Silicon Valley, of Hollywood, of you know California real estate. These people love her. And they were a part of the package deal. Joe Biden, by choosing Kamala Harris, got those donors in his corner. And in fact, that's precisely what happened. He raised $26 million in a 24-hour period after announcing Kamala Harris. And you could say, oh, that's just the base really enthusiastic about Kamala. But there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. There's a CNBC article titled, Wall Street Executives Are Glad Joe Biden Picked Kamala Harris to Be His (laughs) VP Running Mate, which contains quotes from these people who are just like, yes, we were waiting for Kamala Harris to be chosen because we wanted a signal that Joe Biden wasn't going to buckle and give in to the progressive wing. And Kamala Harris to us is that signal because we know that she's in our corner. So that's why she was chosen. And that's, you know, gives you a sense of what the Democratic Party's, you know, calculus is in general. They're really triangulating around those top dollar donors with everything that they do. And that's why they're unable to take advantage of this political moment and provide a really robust political alternative to Donald Trump and to really highlight his failure by proposing a a really robust alternative. Mm. Right now we're going to go into uh, the main part of the show, the deep dive, where we're going to have a bit more of an in-depth discussion about your work and yeah, current events in in US politics. Um, So can you start by telling me a little bit about what brought you to socialism and how you got involved in the Bernie campaign? Because I was reading a couple of your articles and in one article you wrote, I didn't know I was a socialist until Bernie Sanders' first presidential campaign. I thought that was brilliant. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I have been um, hovering around the broad left, um, you know, very, very, very broad, very vaguely defined left for a very long time. Now, I myself mm. did not grow up in a working class household, but I feel like, you know, the type of household that I did grow up in gave me a little crash course on wealth inequality. Uh, and I, I grew up in a relatively wealthy household. And I, my instincts from, you know, a pretty early age were gravitating toward class politics because it seemed quite obvious to me that class was providing the basic structure or scaffolding for people's experience under capitalism. But I didn't have the option available to me to pursue that. So like when I first got to college, my first instinct was to get involved in a group called United Students Against Sweatshops. Um, I went to a couple mm-hmm. conferences, but there just wasn't really like a strong presence of that type of politics at the campus that I was at because class politics just wasn't really popular in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up kind of backing away from that initial impulse and got involved in other types of activism that were more sort of identity-based and identity-focused. I was never super heavily involved. One of the reasons that I wasn't is that I felt that maybe activism was a strong uh, and maybe too generous term for a lot of what that was at the time. A lot of it was actually kind of like mutual recriminations um, being passed off as as activism. And uh, it was, you know, disheartening and alienating to me. And so I was kind of slightly depoliticized for several years, but I also I also had this like latent understanding that class politics was necessary, that we needed to be talking about class and the way that it structures our society. Um, and we need to be talking about capitalism and wealth and economic inequality in particular, alongside all of the identity concerns that are very legitimate and valid and which were taking up, you know, the, the left's sort of in time, all of the left's time and energy for those years. And it was when Bernie Sanders announced his presidential campaign in 2015 
2018 that I felt like I finally came out of hiding. Like the sort of 18 year old who wanted to join a group called United Students Against Sweatshops got an opportunity as like a 28 year old to to actually <laughs> explore explore the implications and ramifications of those politics on a large scale. And you know, Bernie Sanders wanted to fight for healthcare for everybody. He wanted to fight for, you know, social housing and, and public education and public transit. And he wanted to fight climate change. Um, you know, he wanted to protect social security and protect our public goods and services like the post office. And this resonated with me. It seemed like a populist politics that spoke to the real material needs of working class people and had class conflictual implications that in order to furnish a decent life for everybody, we were going to have to forcibly take the money from the wealthy and redistribute it, which seemed like to me like precisely what ought to happen. Mm. Um, and then I, you know, the term for that, that I learned in 2015, 2016 was democratic socialism. And mm -hmm. immediately it just, it sent me in search of democratic socialists, led me to join democratic socialists of America. Uh, at that point, I was already a writer. I had been writing for a history magazine for a while. Um, I had done a fellowship at mother Jones, which is sort of like a progressive -y type. I mean, it's a stretch, but you know, it's, it, it, it's sort of a nominally progressive magazine. And so that becoming a member of the democratic socialists of America and being a writer, I was, you know, led eventually to Jacobin. And then I became a writer at Jacobin. And I haven't looked back since. I've been organizing with DSA and writing for Jacobin ever since 2016, 2017. And uh, this is this is just my life now. And it makes it makes a lot more sense. I feel like I was in the I was in the wilderness for about 10 years there with like a, a decent impulses, but no scaffolding for for those politics and uh, no no way of finding other people who might share those same impulses and developing a coherent political perspective together. And that the thing that changed that was Bernie Sanders's campaign. So you kind of hinted at the answer to this question there, but you know, you've obviously written a lot about the idea of democratic socialism. I found a, another article of a kind of interview with you from Vox, which is was like, what is democratic socialism <laughs> as told by a democratic socialist? And obviously, this is also something that we talked about a lot in the UK as part of the Corbyn campaign. But I feel like here it's more grounded in the history of the Labour Party, in a kind of movement that stretches back to previous democratic socialist politicians like Tony Benn and others mm -hmm. you know it's on the back of like you turn over your Labour Party membership card it's like this is a democratic socialist party but I'm wondering like how you understand the difference between you know the idea of democratic socialism and you know what you were just talking about the kind of nebulous progressive like NGO type politics that often gets passed off as kind of the left I think that we are still, so you guys are lucky in the UK because you do have like a stronger and uh, democratic socialist tradition that's closer at hand. And in the United States, the, and they say democratic socialists, but we can, we can leave, we, the splitting hair is about the use of the term democratic. We can leave to the side for a moment. As opposed to revolutionary. We will, we right. will take that as red for now. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so, uh, so the socialist tradition writ large in the United States was scrubbed out of public life via the second red scare via mccarthyism it was extraordinarily mm. effective uh, people talk about mccarthyism as as being a kind of um collective hysteria as though it were sort of like a moral panic i think that what people miss is that it was actually a class project it was a very intentional mm. one that was pursued by a network of anti-communists who were very plugged in with, you know, the capitalist elite and like pursued this, this project and used the tools of moral hysteria in order to accomplish that on a popular level. But we're like very intentional about purging radicals from the labor unions, you know, getting, you know, communists kicked out of Hollywood and basically driving the communist party and all fellow travelers and anybody who identified as a socialist underground um, and erasing all, you know, evidence of them from public life. So <laughs> extraordinarily successful. And as a result of that, even though we've had a left, we haven't had a socialist inflected left for about half a century mm -hmm. now. And so what we have to do is rebuild a definition of socialism into American culture. It's not just like rattling around in people's heads. And to the extent that it is, it's actually mm -hmm. quite toxic and damaging because it's a legacy of the Cold War and people associate it with Stalin and purges and so on. Uh, the sort of like, uh, you know, alien enemy socialism being a sort of, you know, something that comes from without and thre threatens us at home. Luckily, I think that actually um, Fox News and the right, they sort of to rest on their laurels a little bit 
And they thought that, you know, with the Cold War over, that uh, socialism wouldn't be rearing its head domestically anytime soon. And so they started calling everything socialist. They would call like Obama, <laughs> like, they started calling Obamacare socialist. And then like anything you want, anything you like, they were constantly calling Obama socialist. They were calling, you know, any anything that even smacked of like a, a just like a hint of progressivism. I mean, and we're talking barely, they would decry as socialist, which kind of erased the legacy of toxicity from the Cold War because it kind of hollowed the term out of meaning, like it became a sort of vacuous or too nebulous of a term to really be used as a cudgel. So that gave us the opportunity to start redefining socialism for the 21st century, which I think was accidental on their part, obviously. But I do think that's actually an important part of the story. So when we talk about socialism, we want to just make it clear that socialism is um, the opposite of capitalism, and that capitalism refers to a system in which a very small number of people own the means of production, whether that be land, tools, factories, you know, money with which to uh, invest and generate more money, stores which employ people and so on. And everybody else has to work for those people in exchange for a wage with which they use to purchase the commodities that are necessary for basic survival. And that this system isn't inherently unequal. It's inherently undemocratic because it sorts people into classes and it subordinates one class to another class. And that, you know, this is not the necessary end of human society. This is not our final stage of evolution. We can do better than this. And if we if we actually do hold these sort of liberal enlightenment values of freedom and democracy and equality and so on, we're going to have to look beyond the traditional liberal insistence that capitalism is the best way to fulfill those ideals. And instead, we should be looking for a different way to structure the relationship between people and production, because the current relationship between people and production produces and reproduces inequality necessarily, just as a structural matter. And that we think that we can, you know, we can do better as a species, as a civilization than that. So that's sort of the starting point for explaining what socialism is. However, there's a difference between the definition of socialism and the program that socialists pursue. So what I'm talking about, what I just spoke about was literally ending capitalism and replacing capitalism with socialism. Obviously, that's not near at hand. That's not going to happen tomorrow or the next day. So what we need to do is we need to pursue reforms that sort of entrench that socialist logic instead of a capitalist logic that sort of, you know, speak to the uh, potential to improve the material conditions and improve the lives of people through the act of decommodification, through the act of um, reversing the tide of austerity and reversing privatization and bringing things under public and democratic control. And that in the fight for those reforms, we will build a constituency that is more primed to pursue even more ambitious things, you know, down the line. And this is how we build a socialist movement, not simply by, you know, planting our flag in the corner and wailing about how capitalism is bad and socialism is good, that we have to actually meet, meet people in, in, the, in, their, in the terrain of their real lives. Um, and so that's why I don't see, you know, any, any real mutual exclusivity between pursuing a Bernie Sanders style social democratic program and calling oneself a socialist as Bernie does, as I do, as Jacobin does, um, and you know, building, building the movement that way. I mean, obviously, your, your program, a program that socialists pursue is going to be calculated in view of the political and economic conditions in which socialists are operating. Um, and obviously in the United States, this is the beating heart of global capitalism and particularly neoliberalism. The agenda of, of privatization and austerity has been pursued so ruthlessly and so fully that simply ad agitating and advocating for social democracy with a class conflictual message saying we can only win these things if we win them against the people who are hoarding the wealth and the people who are hoarding the power. That is enough to provide a spark for a socialist movement, the kind of socialist movement that can actually win the type of society that I started out talking about, which again, is not exactly around the corner. Yeah, I mean, it hinges on that idea, doesn't it, of uh, what Andre Gortz calls, and what we've talked about a lot in recent years of kind of non-reformist reforms and aiming to use democratic means to shift the balance of power between capital and labor. Now, you know, obviously, a lot of the way that the Corbyn and Sanders movements generally have conceptualized that transformation has been through you know, we will gain control of the state and we will use state power to implement, you know, policy changes that help us to achieve those goals. 
And there has been a, I suppose, a kind of mounting criticism in the wake of the defeats of those campaigns that perhaps we focus too much on electoralism, too much on electoral politics and not enough um, on organizing in other areas of society, not enough on the labor movement, not enough on kind of, you know, embedding socialist tactics and and theory in wider social movements. So, yeah, I guess I just want to know what, what you think about that. Do you think that's a valid criticism? And do you think that we're going to see something of a correction in terms of the balance between electoral and uh, an extra electoral organizing in the coming years? Well, I can't necessarily speak to the UK context because I don't know um, the extent yeah, to which sorry. Groups, like momentum are actually involved in, the in US, yeah. organizing. Yeah, but I mean, I'm curious about it. Like, I'm curious. I'll tell you what I think about the United States, and you can tell me whether you think that this tracks closely to the situation in the UK. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so the situation in, in the United States is that you know um, we have um, a nascent socialist movement, which to be quite honest, owes almost entirely to a large-scale electoral project, a large-scale bid for state power, which just captured the attention of the nation and sort of catalyzed a series of processes which resulted, I mean, very quickly in a massive influx of people into a particular socialist organization, the Democratic Socialists of America, which now has 70,000 members. It's the largest socialist organization in the United States in over half a century. And we have a reborn socialist movement. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that that started happening in, lo and behold, the year 2016. Well, what what else happened in 2016? I mean, it's obvious. Sometimes people will try to obfuscate this or like layer in complexities. And like, yes, obviously, like the conditions for Bernie's, you know, run were laid by, for example, Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street before Mm. it. Um, And, you know, the financial crisis and the sort of like broader macroeconomic shifts. But let's just like strip it down to its most basic elements. Bernie Sanders ran for president in 2016 as a democratic socialist and then a group that had 6,000 members that was basically defunct called the Democratic Socialists of America started swelling in ranks and and vibrance and vitality and now we have a reborn socialist movement in the United States. So to the extent that we focus too much, well, okay, let me put it this way. I think that there is such a thing as electoralism, meaning a narrow focus on elections as the sole means through which to advance socialist politics or to advance the class struggle. That is something that we do want to avoid. But I think that it's kind of um, reductive and juvenile to discount elections then as not being useful for our project of extra parliamentary organizing. I mean, in truth, I know that some to some it might sound like a cop-out because when you, whenever you say both, it always sounds a little bit like a cop-out, but it's also often true. We have to pursue yeah. electoral politics in order to strengthen our non-electoral politics and vice versa. So um, that is the approach that we try to advocate for in DSA. And by we, I mean, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I do um, as a member of DSA and as a writer, Jacobin and as a socialist, but also, you know, Micah and I wrote this book, Bigger Than Bernie. Mm. And it very much advocates for, you know, using elections to strengthen movements, to promote the agenda of movements and to ideally win power and actually like, you know, win legislation that could alter the you know political conditions to allow movements to flourish and advance on their own, including chiefly the labor movement. But then also in the reverse to to um, to, to take advantage of the, um, you know, the movements that we have, the sort of like, for example, the socialist organizations that we have, the left wing unions or the left wing presence in unions that we have to strengthen our electoral projects and to actually give those their proper due and to understand that they are incredibly important for two reasons. One, you have to implement laws. I mean, you have to like change, you have to change, you know, the laws in order to change the conditions in a lot of cases and to make it easier for yourself to tilt the playing field in, in your favor. And two, in the process of pursuing state power, you get a lot of people's attention because that's where most people think politics happens for better or worse. And you just have to understand that and just accept that. And so that means that you get the opportunity on a pretty massive scale with all the media paying attention to you to have a conversation, to actually put forward your political perspective and to galvanize people and to help them, you know, develop and crystallize class consciousness and, and their, and their political perspective. Um, And so we have to take advantage of those opportunities to do that, which means that we have to run in elections. Um, I do, you know, especially after Bernie, after Bernie conceded, and especially when the Black Lives Matter protests started happening, you did start to hear 
from people, you know, like a, there was a little bit of like a victory lap from people who were never super keen on electoral politics to begin with. Mm. But I think, it's more, I think it's more or less subsided for a lot of reasons, one of which being that the Black Lives Matter protests, while they continue and while they have actually won some tangible gains, which we should celebrate, have also not produced like a, I mean, clearly we're at nearing the end of the summer. The protests, like I said, they've continued, but they've also started to thin a little bit and they've changed in, in character somewhat. And they haven't, you know, they haven't sort of been a silver bullet either. I mean, it's been clear when you that it would be nice to have, you know, friends in the halls of power to be able to advance the demands of the movement in the street, that that might actually help when it comes to realizing those demands in the real world. And so I don't think that we're going to see too much of a backlash, at least in the United States. I think that in DSA, a lot of the serious activists understand the importance of elections and not just national elections, but, um, you know, municipal and, and state elections. I think we're wary of running too small of elections. Like, you know, if you aim too small, then you're really kind of like relinquishing that ability to speak to people on a large platform, which is really kind of half the battle. I and mean, that's kind of like half, at least half of the reason that you're doing it to begin with, not simply to, I mean, you want to win. You have to, you have to mount credible challenges for what it's worth. They have to be credible and they can't be too small. There's like a couple of different criteria yeah. that we want to keep in mind when we're like pursuing electoral politics. But in any case, I think DSA will continue to, especially because we're galvanized in the wake of Bernie Sanders's defeat by this massive victory in New York, where we had five candidates yeah. standing swept all five of them got in to the uh, to the state house in new york so we're all feeling like yeah let's replicate that as throughout the country let's like whatever whatever they're doing in new york let's do more of it and you know in chicago they have they have six socialist city council members in chicago and they have for a couple of years now so there are some models across the country and we're trying to we're trying to pursue those but not hopefully in an electoralist sense in 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 a mm. sense of strengthening dsa strengthening the labor movement strengthening you know uh, class in general. Yeah, I mean, I basically agree with your answer to that question. And, you know, obviously in the UK, we do have, I suppose, our equivalent to DSA is momentum. And there have been a lot of discussions mm-hmm. recently about what momentum should be doing. Should it just be trying to continue to organize within the Labour Party? Obviously, it's slightly different because you have this Labour Party machine that continues to exist right. even outside of elections. And there are important positions that you can, you know, strive to get control of through organizing within the party. So there is a difference there. There's also this question of like who's in in power in the Labour Party. But there has been, you know, again, that kind of sense of, oh, yeah, well, you know, the electoral route was always doomed from the beginning among some people. So let's go back to not caring about elections. But obviously, as you say, you know, what the importance of organising in and in the UK, it's predominantly national elections, but also to to a lesser extent, kind of um, local and regional elections is that you are you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to broadly encourage people to self-organize. There's been all this talk about, you know, we need mm-hmm. to like boost community organizing. We need to like really get back in touch with local communities. And it's all very, it like sounds very good, but it's like, how do you actually do that? You don't get someone from the Labour Party or Momentum going to like, you know, somewhere in the Northeast and saying, hey guys, do you want to organize? Like, <laughs> let me show you how. It's about actually how do you kind of facilitate the organic self-organizing that people do in response to, a realization that their material interests would be served or, you know, a wider sense that they would be better off, society would be better off if things were different. And you're you're seeing that much more now, I think, in response to the to the pandemic, people like organically self-organizing to like help meet each other's needs and stuff. So I think you're right, like focusing on elections helps people to do that. And also, you know, there's that whole thing of you might not be interested in the state, but the state's interested in you. Like you also need to be able to allow people to organize, right? You need to remove anti-union legislation. Mm-hmm. You need to like ensure people can protest. And that all requires having some sort of, you know, if not like control over, if not like a movement that is actively in power because one of its people is in power, then at least, you know, a political project that has an ear open to those movements. Yeah. In 2016, Bernie Sanders ran for president as a democratic socialist. And there was a sort of explosion of um, left-wing populist class solidarity focused politics in the United States. And one thing that we can't say for certain came strictly out of that, but that we, it's important for us to like examine what the relationship is, is the largest strike wave in 40 years in the United yes. States, which is the teacher strike wave. So yeah. um, I think it would be very reductive for us to say, well, then Bernie happened and then the teacher strike wave happened and voila, like 
proof, you know, proofs in the pudding. I mean, obviously we have to like, like really dig down into that and see what the connections are. And when you do, you will find connections and they can, they can sort of teach you what the value of, of electoral politics is for building extra parliamentary movements. And so West Virginia was the first state to go out on strike. If you look at the anatomy of the West Virginia teachers strike, you will find that the initial sort of Facebook group that was started for teachers to like, um, it, it was started by people who recognized that there was a radical mood and that it might be, it, there might be mm-hmm. conditions ripe for organizing. And these two people who started it, Emily Comer and Jay O'Neill, are members of DSA who had joined DSA in the wake of the Bernie campaign. So the Bernie campaign had led them to DSA where they began talking about organizing teachers, where they then took the next step. And then, of course, there was an organic militancy from West Virginia teachers who not only are not Bernie supporters, but some of them are Republicans and many of them are apolitical. Right. But the the initial sort of um, organizing impulse it's important that you have, you know, people who are able to take initiative and who have like a broader political project that they want to pursue to be able to take that initiative. And in this case, in the West Virginia teachers strike case, we can trace that directly back to the Bernie Sanders campaign and the ignition of a kind of um, political um, clarity and anger and, um, you know, passion for action that just didn't subside when the um, when the campaign ended. And also the um, institution that emerged in the wake of the campaign that was acted as a container for people who, who shared those kinds of characteristics, right? So it's important to like look at the teachers strike and to say like, we know that it didn't come spring fully formed from the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but we also understand that the Sanders campaign was able to generate um, types of people and places for those types of people to meet each other that helped, you know, spawn it. And this is also true across the country. I mean, I should, I should say that it's not just West Virginia, but if you look at places like Arizona, if you look in places like California, you're going to find the same thing over and over again, which is that a lot of the key organizers and people who played active roles in organizing the teachers strikes were in fact people who had been sort of politically turned on during the Bernie Sanders campaign and had developed political relationships with others during the Bernie Sanders campaign, or at the very least, if that wasn't the genesis, then they had strengthened them through the Bernie Sanders campaign. And there's an article by, uh, by Eric Blanc in Jacobin about this that I mm-hmm. encourage other people to go read because he sort of did the work of talking to key organizers across the country. And he found that this pattern was not, it was not a rule, but it certainly held. And I think, you know, another, another example that we talk about in the book is um, we ran a, we ran a failed electoral campaign in the East Bay where, when I was living in Oakland, we ran a failed electoral campaign for state house, but it was in the process of running the campaign that DSA members, many of whom, by the way, had joined DSA coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign, were able to build the infrastructure and build the skills and confidence that allowed us to then be the sort of primary community partner in the Oakland teacher strike when the strike wave finally made its way up to us. So you can see the interrelationships in a, in a less abstract and more concrete way through those examples between electoral politics and extra parliamentary organizing or specifically labor organizing. So now we're going to go on to the final section of the show, The Struggle, where we talk about movements and campaigns that we want to bring to listeners' attention so that they can, you know, actually take action on some of these issues and figure out what's going on around them. So, um, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about a campaign that you would like our listeners to get involved in or that you think that they would want to get involved in um, that kind of you're really passionate about? I mean, it depends, obviously, where they live. But if they're living in the United States, I am always going to be a big booster for the Democratic Socialists of America every time I do one of these podcasts. I do think that people should get involved in DSA. I think that if you've heard that DSA is like, you know, kind of a circus, then that's true. That's correct. DSA is kind of a circus. It's wild. And you know what? It's an incredible grand democratic experiment in trying to figure out how to build a socialist movement in a capitalist country. And if you are a socialist, you should be involved in that. You can't leave that up to other people. It's also an opportunity to learn the kinds of skills that you are going to need to do any kind of political work whatsoever. And those skills are everything from technical skills, the technical skills of organizing that you would need, for example, to organize a campaign or organize a union drive all the way to the kind of interpersonal social skills, I would say like political social skills that people don't have because we don't have democratic 
organizations in our society. We don't have opportunities to collectively make decisions together. And what those opportunities actually afford for you is an the opportunity to learn how to um, build coalitions with people who you mostly agree with, but who are not identical to you, to find people who actually do share your political perspective and like build formations with them to actually get things done, to deal with, you know, people who are adversarial on a particular issue, but are broadly aligned with you politically, and to figure out how to deal with people who are just adversarial in general, who you actually don't feel like you align with, um, and like, and like figure out how to like handle that with grace and not have a meltdown, which is frankly a skill that I don't I don't think people have, and I think that it's necessary. And I think that in in the in the past, like in the history of the socialist movement, they didn't have the internet. People were not nearly as isolated in general, and so people just knew how to like exist in organizations with each other. It was necessary to go be involved in an organization in order to be involved in a movement whatsoever. You couldn't simply you know, like, like fave tweets online and feel like you were like a part of the club yeah. or whatever. You had to actually go be a part of the organization and there and there you would learn these skills. You need to basically push yourself over the edge in order to learn these skills now. You need to push yourself to actually go get involved in a socialist organization. And that means taking on the frustration that it's going to involve because like DSA is a big tent organization. There are people who are more on the anarchist side in the organization. There are people who are more on the electoralist side in the organization. There are Marxists, there are libertarian socialists there. You know, it's, it's like, um, that's what I mean when I say that it's a circus. What I also mean is it's a multi-tendency socialist organization in which people are attempting to actually like build constituencies for their politics and assert them to make them hegemonic on the American socialist left, which is a good thing to do. That's what you should be trying to do. Wow. So I think people should join DSA. And I think that um, they should uh, get involved in, in building uh, DSA because we need to have disciplined socialist organization if we don't, then uh, we're just going to be, you know, shooting from the hip, shots in the dark, whatever metaphor you want. I, I also think if we want to talk about specific campaigns that, for example, DSA is pursuing that I think are really good, one of them is the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. It's also known as EWOC. It's a joint project between DSA and the United Electrical Workers, which is a left-wing union. Basically, the idea is to reach out to people broadly, to just put out the call. If you are a worker who is having trouble at your workplace due to the pandemic and you want to organize, get in touch with us and we will uh, initiate the process of helping you organize. And that doesn't mean right now organizing a union. Organizing a union is a difficult process. People have emergency needs to organize around particular issues that are life or death for them. And EWOC has been basically fielding intakes and putting socialists on them, basically putting like, you know, socialists from DSA on the task of like going through those intakes and like sorting, sorting through stuff and plugging people in. And then kind of there's like a pyramid structure going all the way up to people who actually do have a lot of experience with workplace organizing. And um, those people are successfully helping workers organize around pandemic related issues right now. And if there are successes, I wrote an article about this, I think it's called something is stirring in the labor movement in Jacobin, if you want to read about mm. some of the early successes of Ewok. And one of the reasons that I like this uh, project is because I think that it's very necessary for us to rebuild the links between socialists and the labor movement, which were in the United States very violently severed um, during the McCarthyist era. Um, you know, radicals were purged from from the labor movement as a, in response to anti anti communism, the anti communist crusade, um, and that has been to the detriment of both the labor movement and the and the socialist movement to the extent that we even had a socialist movement. Um, and so we need to rebuild those links. And I think that Ewok is, is a prototype for how we can do that um, because it is not only helping workers organize and building militancy and skills on the shop floor, but it's doing that by connecting organically militant workers with dedicated socialist activists who understand the importance of organized labor and in tandem, like those two things are stronger than the sum of their parts. So I don't want to like overhype it too much. It's in, you know, it's in like, it's like a, in, in beta testing basically. But I think that it's the kind of 
political direction that we want to be going in. And um, I, if you can get you can get involved in EWOP, like you can go look it up. Um, I think that you should do that. And finally, I will say that another type of good good campaign that's happening right now is is one that um, I'm helping work on a little bit here in, in California, which is uh, Proposition 15, which is going to tax corporate landowners. In California, that there are plenty of them. I mean, we're talking like huge swaths of land are owned by like Disney, for example. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and to tax they they pay taxes that are frozen at like 1978 property tax rates. Um, where you, this is just a campaign to un, unfreeze that and to just reassess and make them pay taxes. It's going to yield to like 10 to 12 billion dollars a year, which we can use. You know, we can sink into our our public services. But one of the reasons why this is a really good campaign is that I think that we need to be running campaigns based on really clear class struggle rhetoric. Like I I'm a huge fan, for example, of like the demand to defund the police coming out of black lives matter. But I also think that it's not, it it can be, it, 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 even though I think that it's like probably the best thing coming out of BLM protests and I want to push on it. I also understand that one of its weaknesses is that it's a little bit ambiguous. And I think that the clearer we can be the better right now. So one of the things that about prop 15 is it's like, tax the rich and invest in social services. Literally one weird trick. It's like, this is one weird trick to take the money that they have built off of the backs of workers in California and take it back for ourselves and use it to better our lives instead of letting them hoard it for themselves. And it's just like so simple and it's a statewide campaign. And a lot of DSA chapters in California are going in on it. A lot of left-wing labor unions in California are going in on it. And this right now is what people are consolidating around in California. And I think it also offers a really good example of the direct kind of direction that we want to go in. Just really simple, like, look, they have it. It's not theirs. They don't deserve it. We want it. We're going to take it. Let's let's take it. So we'll put a link to um, each of those, uh, to the article that Megan mentioned um, and to the other articles that we've discussed in the description of this episode. And the other thing that I wanted to say when Megan, you were saying, go and like join the DSA, like, you know, it's a circus, but it's a good thing to do. I'm also like, I hung out loads with DSA people when I was in the US for my book tour and it was really fun. Like they're good people. I had a really nice time. It, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I, 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 maybe my own frustrations with like current, um, like DSA micro controversies are like shining through my comments. In reality, DSA <laughs> has, DSA has, has given me the basis of a political community that I never, ever could have dreamed of. I mean, I literally could not have imagined it prior to joining yeah. DSA. And the reason I couldn't have imagined it is because such a thing simply didn't exist in the United States. And I credit being a member, an active member of DSA with helping me build the political perspective that guides me in literally everything that I do. And Mm. it's been an honor and a blessing and a privilege and a pleasure and also a frustrating mess at times. So (laughs) so all of them at once. I feel you. (laughs) Thank you so much um, for joining me today on A World to Win, Megan Day. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you, Grace. I'll talk to you later.